Hello, I'm Guy Hanson and I'm Director of Exhibitions. And um, the reason why I'm here is I'm, I'm chairing today's event because it's with great pleasure that, um, that Gary Worski and his co-curator, uh, Natalie Wilson, have prepared this exhibition for the National Library of Australia. And Gary will be talking about the exhibition. And of course, before I say anything else, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians on the land in which we meet, the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people, and I thank their elders past and present for caring for this land. And um, we're very glad that we're here and able to call this place our home now. So I'm delighted to be uh, hosting today's event. Um, it's really great as we come to the end of this exhibition, which has got another, I think, three weeks to run, to celebrate um, what a great exhibition it is. A Nation Imagined, the artist of the picturesque atlas. If you haven't already seen it, make sure you do go and visit it, um, perhaps after the talk or come back another day and have a look, because it really is a fantastic exhibition. I'm particularly proud of this exhibition because it does what the best exhibitions do. It combines the best of uh, scholarship with great collections. And in this case, the collections which we're drawing on are the National Library's collections and also a number of other private collections and the collections of the New South Wales Art Gallery. Bringing this material together allows you to see things that you couldn't see if you were just visiting each of those institutions. So it's a really wonderful example of how um, if museums and galleries and libraries work together, you can produce something quite amazing. And uh, I think the show upstairs really is um, it is, is a quite an amazing show. Um, now, none of this would have been possible without the passion of Gary and his co-curator, Natalie. Um, and, and they, a long time ago, recognised what an important book the picturesque atlas of Australasia was. They, they recognised this one of the great um, print production efforts of Australia in the 19th century. And uh, it perhaps is a book which is ignored. And it's a book of such treasures and, and such beautiful illustrations and also so interesting about what it tells about Australia. So we're very lucky that Gary and Natalie, through their scholarship, have been able to bring a spotlight onto that book, which can allow all of us, and this is what great curation does, is, is it finds something significant and then brings it to a broader audience. And that's exactly what Gary and Natalie have done with this show and with preparing this material about the book. Um, so uh, I just perhaps want to mention that this is made possible by a partnership between the library and the New South Wales Art Gallery. The New South Wales Art Gallery were very generous in providing uh, Natalie, Natalie's um, time as a curator. And you might have seen Natalie on TV. She's, uh, she's also the curator of the Archie 100 exhibition and features in that documentary about the Archies. And, um, without that assistance from the New South Wales Art Gallery and also in making available to us some very important items from their collection and material which is usually on permanent display in the New South Wales Art Gallery. So it's quite exceptional that they released that material to us to display here. You see some great paintings in the exhibition which are normally on permanent display up in Sydney and also Natalie's time. So I really want to thank the New South Wales Art Gallery. And also uh, other important material came from private collections and also from Macquarie University and the Art Gallery of South Australia. So all of that's what helped make this possible. So that's enough from me. I'm going to hand over to Gary and uh, join him on this, this journey into why the artists of the picturesque Atlas matter. Thank you. Well, thank you, and uh, thank you for coming, leaving your homes and uh, coming out, uh, out in, the, in the elements. Um, I have some acknowledgments to make first uh, myself. Apart from acknowledging that we're standing on the land of the Nunawal people, it's actually important for this talk to acknowledge, in fact, the, the land, the country of all Australasian First Nations peoples. Because it has always been the case that their country is the subject of their art. But in fact, it's also always been the country uh, that's been displayed in the art of those who dispossessed the First Nations people and then transformed it in their own image. And this will become very evident from today's talk. Um, likewise, I'd like to acknowledge the National Library of Australia and the Art Gallery of New South Wales of taking a punt on a, an idea that Natalie Wilson and I have been chasing for eight years as part of my project on the life and art of Albert Henry Fullwood, which is, goes back even further. And without the exhibition, the book would not have appeared and, and, and vice versa. So it's been a really crucial and extraordinary experience uh, to bring this off. 
Um, and finally, I would just reiterate what uh, Guy had to say about Natalie Wilson. Um, I was extremely fortunate that we could partner on this exhibition. She is an, an amazing and extraordinary curator, not only with a great historical sense and a great eye, and she's a terrific sleuth, as you'll see in the ABC series uh, on the Archies, um, but also because she, she's a, a great and very experienced designer who in this case collaborated with uh, the designer on Guy's team, Isabel Trundle, and the result is for all to see uh, up in the exhibition. I'm going to begin um, by posing a question which I shall quickly answer. This is, uh, this is not a test, but when you think about it, who were the most viewed artists in Australia of the 1880s and 1890s? And I'll give you a hint, it was not Tom Roberts, it was not Arthur Streeton, although these are the most viewed artists of that era today, but they were not at that time. So who were the most viewed artists? Well, if you stepped into the National Gallery of Victoria and the National Art Gallery of New South Wales, this is the art that you would have been seeing. It was the art produced by British painters, specifically royal academicians, in this case, George Frederick Watts. Uh, this is a well-known subject, Artemis and Hyperion, uh, all three and a half square meters of it. Uh, because this is what was bought in quantity by the major galleries uh, that were around at that time. But if you stepped outside the precincts of those galleries, the most viewed art that you would have seen in Australia at the time was the black and white art produced by the artists of the colonial illustrated press, the English trained artist illustrators uh, of that time. And within that cohort, the most acclaimed artists of all at that time in Australia were the American and British Australian artist illustrators who provided the images for the picturesque atlas of Australasia. So it's in that context that I want to talk to you today about not only why the art and artists of the picturesque atlas mattered at the time, but why in fact they still matter today. And for that excursion, I'm gonna take you through, be, be warned, this is a very, very big story, okay? So strap yourselves in because I'm going to try to cover a lot of ground of what is an extraordinary large and largely untold story in our history. So first of all, we need to understand the importance of the black and white art of that era. Why did it matter so much at that time? Before going on to ask the question, why was the atlas created? How was it produced? How was it sold? How was it received? And then that sets the stage for our looking at the iconography of the atlas. That is to say, how did the atlas portray uh, the settler colonial view at the time of Australia's, Australasia's uh, history, its achievements, uh, and its prospects? We then go on to say, once the atlas was out there in the market, we look at the impact of both the art and the artists of the atlas on Australian art itself between 1886 and the end of the First World, World War. And once we have all of that under our, uh, under our belts, we can come back then and answer more easily the question, why did the Atlas, its art, its artists matter then, and why does it matter today? All right, let's begin with the two great art revolutions in the second half of the 19th century. The first one you definitely know about, it was an aesthetic Revolution, namely the advent of Australian, oh, sorry, of French Impressionism uh, as a prelude to modernist art in the 20th century. This is what art, art historians obsess about, and this is what major museums know will increase footfall into their galleries. No problem. But there was another revolution in the second half of the 19th century. It was a technological revolution, and that was in the production of black and white art for the illustrated press because it was this revolution that revolutionized how art was produced and reproduced on a mass scale. It transformed how people saw themselves, 
their societies and the world, and how it, finally it expanded, indeed created, a new market for art and artists that had not existed before. Now, it did all of those things, so you might think we want to spend a little bit of time on that revolution and not just the aesthetic revolution of French Impressionism. The black and white art of the illustrated press was created courtesy of some technological breakthroughs uh, in the reproduction of uh, pictures through what was called photoprocess wood engraving. We've tried in the exhibition to demonstrate what that revolution was about. I can't go into it here at this time, but it is to say that it then allowed highly skilled engravers to reproduce with tremendous accuracy the artwork that was given to them and in turn allowed printers and designers to produce the illustrated newspapers and illustrated books of the time. And one of the most extraordinary things, of course, about this revolution is that the source of images in the illustrated press, the source was not photographs, which is what we're used to today. The source of those images were drawings and paintings, or sometimes overpainted photographs to make them more lifelike. This was partly due to the limitations of camera technology at the time. But even more interestingly, given that we're having a great discussion about fake news at the moment, is that most of the images in the illustrated press were entirely imagined because there was no way photographers or sketch artists could be present at battles or having tea with the queen. And so basically situations were presented that in the end could be most, most easily imagined and reproduced by, by uh, artists, by working artists. Um, and that's why at the time, uh, the, it, was, it was that art of this sort was seen as far superior to photography as a way of illustrating uh, the news. The Bendigo Advertiser on the 2nd of April, 1887, writing about the Atlas had this to say, the charm of all these pictures is their freedom from photographic stiffness. While they reproduce the actual scenes far more faithfully than any mechanical photograph could do, they have, in addition, the soul of the poet, the eye of the painter, and the hand of the artist superadded. So, people then got their views of the world from how artists imagined them and how they were reproduced in the illustrated press. And it was this, this imagery that transformed, in turn, how people, including Austral Britons, saw themselves, their societies, and the world. It created a visual culture that was accessible to all, something that had not been achieved prior to the middle of the 19th century ever in human history. Um, and so the, in a sense, it, what we have created through the illustrated press is the first worldwide web of illustrated news. And you know full well that you want your news illustrated. Well, for the first time, people in, the, in, the, in America, Europe, uh, and Australasia were able to have that, uh, that benefit. And this was recognized by the art director uh, of the Atlas himself, Fred Schell, one of America's leading artist illustrators. He wrote in 1887, in the life of magazines, pictures and popularity have become synonymous. It would nowadays be an absurdity for a publisher to appeal to the people through the pages of a periodical without illustrations. How vivid becomes the personalities of our heroes and heroines when the imagination and culture of the artist has been expended upon the thrilling incident related in the printed pages. Illustrated magazines, too, have been the best teachers of geography, either inside or outside the classroom. And through them, and principally perhaps through the pictures in them, we stay at home and become acquainted with the scenery and ways of life in the uttermost parts of the earth. So you have this explosion of the illustrated press across the world, which in turn demanded uh, an explosion in the production of illustrators, painters, engravers, designers, and printers who could actually generate this content and make it available through the illustrated press. Um, and indeed, in this case from the graphic, you have a celebration on the left of the principal artists of that newspaper, and on the left, the engravers who made the reproduction of those artists' work uh, possible. So these became rock stars and 
and uh, magazines and newspapers had to compete for the best artists available. In this case, in many cases, royal academicians actually work, working the night shift producing uh, illustrations for, for the graphic. Um, and at the same time, and this is a nice little twist, as a result of the Illustrated Press, its art created uh, an expansion of the audience for art. So people looked initially at art as what appeared in the press, and then they began to want to go further and look at other kinds of art. And that in turn increased the interest, uh, not just in the art of the newspapers, but fine art, if you like, that hung on gallery walls. There were a number of centers uh, of excellence at this time. The Illustrated London News was the first illustrated newspaper produced in 1842. But in fact, just 10 years later, the Illustrated Sydney News appeared. And in various iterations, that along with a plethora of illustrated newspapers uh, in Australia began to appear. Um, and of course, probably the, the one most famous to you was the Bulletin, uh, which had the extraordinary gift of uh, both English and American and as well as Australian uh, comic artists. And as the bulletin proudly pro proclaimed on the left, everybody reads the bulletin, including the, the colonial governor, lieutenant, the, Lord Carrington, and at the bottom, Sir Henry Parks, who, as you will see, was often the, the butt of a lot of the, uh, of the bulletin's humor. And again, it may, uh, you may not be aware, but a claim that can be made with real credibility that one of the world's great centers of black and white art was here in Australia in the second half of the 19th century. And that was not only a credit to the illustrated newspapers and the magazines, but also to the picturesque atlas of Australasia. But for subtlety of re reproduction and daringness of illustration, it was the Americans who were in the, in the forefront, largely due to the fact that they were at the forefront of technological innovation in terms of black and white illus illustration, both in engraving um, and, in, and in printing. And the summit of excellence of the illustrated press was the picturesque book industry. Now, these were books that combined, if you like, a kind of lonely planet for the 19th century for armchair travelers. So, vivid descriptions and vivid picture, pictures of the wonders of the world and the different par parts of the world. Um, and at the same time, being presented and treated as high-end art books. Uh, if coffee tables had existed in the Victorian period, it was the picturesque books that would have landed uh, upon them. Um, and, and the Americans perfected the art, not only of producing, but of marketing uh, these fabulous uh, picturesque picturesque art books. This is a very important example. This is picturesque Canada, which was marketed all across Canada uh, by a, a, an army of Yankee, Yankee salesmen selling this, these, this production in parts um, uh, on the never-never, if you like. So it was uh, innovations in marketing and salesmanship as much as in production and artwork that was a key to the success of picturesque Canada. That was completed by a group of New York engravers, artists, and entrepreneurs in 1884. And the next question for this group was, would, would be, where to next? Well, of course, they were working in one collection of British colonies at that time. So looking across the Pacific, why not try the Australasian uh, possessions and colonies of Britain at, as well? And it was a very good hunch that indeed there was a, a very ripe market for such a picturesque uh, presentation. It was a splendid market, market opportunity, not least because the Australasian colonies in the main were amongst the wealthiest societies per capita on earth at that point. Um, it was a boom time in particular in the 1880s uh, in, in Melbourne uh, and more broadly throughout Australasia. Also, there was an enormous upwelling of settler pride in what had been achieved in such a short space of time uh, within, particularly on the Australian continent. 95% of the settler population at that time was Austral Britain. Uh, it was the whitest of all of the colonial uh, outposts of the British Empire. And 70% of that population had been locally born. And so 
It was no accident then that in 1872 we had the formation of the Australian Natives Association, and there's already a contestation, oddly enough, of who needed, who had the better claim to being a native at this point uh, in Australia. And in 1878, we got the greatest hymn to settler colonialism ever written. It was called Advance Australia Fair. So all of that was, was going on, and then the timing was exquisite because in 1887, Queen Victoria was having her Golden Jubilee. In 1888, there was a centenary of white settlement in Australia, and there was already beginning to be a grand discussion about where was Australasia going? Would it be possible to federate the colonies into a new nation? Um, and finally, from the standpoint of the Atlas, what was uh, Atlas uh, promoters was very good is that there was also a well-established illustrated press in Australasia, which meant that there was a core of competence, particularly talented artists, illustrators, with whom they could collaborate in the production uh, of, this, of this book. So they set to, uh, at the end of 1884, the first of the Atlas contingent arrived. For six months, they sussed out the market, and the market looked particularly good. They knowingly went to colonial governors, uh, to captains of, of industry, uh, to judges, and so forth. They went to the great and the good, in other words, for endorsements of, the, of their enterprise. They also, in the meantime, found investors who were willing to put up money as seed capital for the enterprise. And they also brought, brought across, yet again, these I have to watch my accent here, but these fast-talking Yankee canvassers um, who literally beat the bush to again see whether or not there would be interest in and a market for uh, what the Atlas was actually uh, offering. And also they made quite a point of networking with all of the great newspapers of the time. And just to make matters worthwhile for the newspapers, um, the Atlas placed between 1886 and 1889 500 advertisements across Australasia. It's not for not that many of our papers are called the advertiser. At any rate, marketing was good, the sales, the sales uh, effort was going strong, but in addition, there was a very sophisticated way of promoting the Atlas both before it was published and even while it, the further supplements were rolling off the presses. And that was by providing art tours in Sydney of the Atlas's three-story establishment in Wynyard Square. It was an art factory and people could go in and could see the entire process from original sketches to engravings to proofs to where it was being printed, bound, and, and, and so on. Um, but even more importantly, the Atlas went on the road constantly with original drawings that it showed in prestigious exhibitions all around Australasia, including the Jubilee Exhibition in Adelaide in 1887, the Melbourne Centennial International Exhibition in 1888, and even to Chicago in 1893 at the World's Columbian uh, Exposition. So bottom line, what was it that the Atlas was selling? Um, well, the pitch of the Atlas have I got there yet? Now, the pitch of the atlas, I'll go back. I'll try to go back, keep you fixated on that. The pitch of the atlas was really very simple. From its flyer, <clears throat> the only complete illustrated work on Australasia, our country as it was and as it is from 1606 to 1888, pictorially and historically described by the best artists and writers superbly illustrated with original, entirely original engravings on steel and wood from sketches made on the spot, edited by Andrew Guerin, M-A-L-L-D, giving a panorama of Australian history and life. All right. Would you buy? At the same time, the Atlas was making a claim that it would also put Australasia on the map. It became the only picturesque book in the 19th century that was an atlas. And the fact that it was seen that this would be an enormous selling advantage here in Australasia is quite interesting in terms of the mindset at the time. But the great advantage of having an atlas-sized format, I no, I've been, I've been doing weights, it's okay, <laughs> is, that you end up, is that you end up with this. It is an enormous 
publication, and it offers the most extraordinary platform for the Atlas artist's work to be displayed full page, across the pages, in montages, and so forth. Despite the fact that we had this on display in the exhibition, it actually makes, there's no substitute for holding this thing up and just realizing the enormity uh, of it, the audacity of it. At any rate, um, that was what was on, what was on offer uh, to, to the public. Now, producing this publication uh, in Sydney was quite uh, an interesting affair, but Sydney was chosen over Melbourne because it was a free trade colony, not a protectionist one, which meant that all of the equipment and gear of the, of the Atlas could be brought in from America duty-free. Uh, and that was very fateful, that difference, as far as the history of art in Australia is concerned. So we have the art factory in Wynyard Square. The American contingent arrives by uh, the middle of 1886. And very soon, very soon, the Atlas artists and engravers were making common cause with the artists and writers of the Bulletin. And the Atlas Bulletin gang, if you like, became very, very important in terms of both the production and the promotion uh, of, the, of the Atlas. Um, uh, that's Albert Henry Fullwood, age 22, when he was taken on the staff. Uh, here is Frank Marnie. Here is Julian Ashton, an incredibly important figure as the story progresses. Um, there's William McLeod of the Bulletin, the leading portrait maker. He had a thing about the Mikado. Um, Frederick Schell, the art, the, the art director, and then up here you've got uh, Livingston Hopkins from the Bulletin, Phil May from the Bulletin, along with W.C. Fittler and William Smedley. The people I've pointed out to you, these seven artists, three Americans and four British colonial artists, produced 90%, 90% of the signed artworks in the Atlas, and there were 800 of them. So it was a very concentrated uh, uh, kind of effort. Um, so how then did they actually get the pictures? Because one of the claims of the Atlas was that it would get pictures made on the spot. So it had some traveling artists, but most of the work fell down to the British, uh, the, the, the British Australian artists, especially Fullwood uh, and Julian Ashton. I'll tell you, I have time for only one traveler's tale, but it's a goodie. So Ashton was uh, deputized to go to North Queensland to do a number of sketches uh, up there. And he was enjoined by the Atlas uh, proprietors, whatever you do, please get a good picture of a crocodile. Okay? So off he went, off he went. And initially he was actually having trouble finding, finding a croc until he got to Townsville. And there he was his first night in the Queen's Hotel and he was having his dinner and then he looked up and what was above him but a six-meter stuffed crocodile hanging over him. And so Ashton, being a clever lad, said to the proprietor, could you take that down and could you get a couple of fellas to come take it with me, take, the, take it with me to the nearby Ross River? So they took it down, they took it to the Ross River. He had it planted in a particularly uh, picturesque uh, position. <laughs> He then made the, made the sketch. He made a number of brilliant sketches and went back to the hotel, hung them up in his room because he knew all the locals were going up to the room to see what in the world uh, these sketches were up to. And they saw this one. And one, one of them came down and, uh, and they asked how far had Ashton been from the crocodile when he did this sketch. And Ashton said, oh, about 10 feet. And then he added, do they bite? <laughs> And the response of the, the local was, you wouldn't get me for all the tea in China to get that close to a crocodile. And from then on, Ashton was pointed out as the man who sat and drew a crocodile not 10 feet from him. Um, however, the only contemporary, contemporaneous account we have of an Atlas artist on the road is by Albert Henry Fullwood in a sketching letter owned by the National Library. But we made a film of this out in the foyer. If you haven't seen it, do. It's a really, really lovely Lovely film. Okay, so we've set the scene, right? The artwork's coming in, everything's been organized. Now we need a launch. And the launch was made uh, for the first part of the Atlas in uh, August of 1886. And by this time, 
the, the reviews were coming in thick and fast. The Maitland Mercury proclaimed, the work is a noble example alike of topography, artistic skill, literary research and ability, and the gentlemen who have had the enterprise to attempt so splendid a production in Australia are benefactors to the colonial community. The Daily Telegraph said even more succinctly, for the first time, the community at large will see the perfection of Australian art. And then that left it to the bulletin. Well, the bulletin said, the book will convince every intelligent Australian who is not yet a subscriber that he has one duty which should precede his evening prayers. Two, in fact. He will see that his bulletin subscription is paid up first. And then he will take his pen and write to the picturesque atlas of Australasia Publishing Company, praying that his name may be forthwith placed on the subscribers list. Then between 1886 and 1889, and you can get this on the NLA's Trove website, just punch in picturesque atlas and look at the hundreds of reviews right across Australasia that were made as each part of the atlas came out. It was the most reviewed art project in the history of Australia. And the Atlas artists knew that they were on to something important. Julian Ashton said at the launch, the time was fast approaching when we shall no longer be content to take a back seat among the nations, even in matters of art. We should instead endeavor to form a school of Australian artists who would draw their inspiration from the scenes and subjects amongst which they had been brought up, not Artemis and Hyperion. And James Smith, the cultural critic of the, uh, of the Argus, added that a distinctive school of landscape painting is being founded in these colonies, revealing to us what a wealth of beauty is to be found in Australian scenery. So, so far so good. And initially, it was looking like it was going to be a great commercial success. Over 60,000 pounds were raised initially as seed capital for, for this, and over 50,000 subscriptions were taken, which at five shillings a part for 42 parts would eventually mean an outlay of 10 guineas, the equivalent of $1,200 for an unpublished three-volume artwork. It'd be a bit of an ask to do that now, wouldn't it? Um, in any event, um, this was how the Atlas, Atlas got going. Now, the question was, what was the message then that the Atlas was conveying about Australasia's history, its prospects and achievements. Probably the most important message of all, that it was men who made Australasia. Colonial governors, soldiers, explorers, squatters, uh, shearers, swaggies, etc. It was images of men making Australasia that was the hallmark of the atlas. And of course, this began with uh, Captain Cook, of course. And this is a, a copy of William McLeod, by William McLeod of a very famous painting. But in the original painting, there's a group of indigenous people there uh, to, to the left. They've been airbrushed out of his, of, of his copy. Um, and that's a kind of indication that the atlas represented a sort of pivot point in the depiction of First Nations people, or ultimately the non-depiction uh, of indigenous people. The Atlas did not uh, shirk the fact, oops, wrong one, did not shirk the fact that there was considerable resistance uh, on the part of indigenous people to uh, the in invasion uh, of the British and the advance of the settlers uh, into, into the hinterland. And indeed, particularly in the section on Queensland, there was an acknowledgement that this resistance was still, was still going on. This is a dramatic picture by, the, by Livingston Hopkins, the American uh, cartoonist for, uh, for, the bullet, for the bulletin. So black on white attacks were pictured in the atlas, but there were no white on black attacks other than those deputized to the Queensland native police who were seen here in the euphemism of the time dispersing uh, an, indigenous, an indigenous man from the camps. And again, the, the Atlas was very forthright about the fact that 
the native troopers really made business on behalf of the, their white employers and helped explorers like George Elphinstone Dalrymple beat his way further northwards, northwards uh, up, to, up to Cape York with the help um, of these troopers. But there was no actual acknowledgement, even in the text as such, about massacres or the front, on the frontier wars. But what W.H. Trail did acknowledge uh, in, in the atlas was this. The historian who has ransacked the official records cannot but admit that poisoning was a common resource in dealing with the wild blacks. But such tragedies were generally insusceptible of proof. They formed the text of yarns round the campfire and in the sharer's hut. On the frontiers, everybody knew all about it. But a certain reserve was maintained in general conversation. Names were omitted and localities merely shadowed. Now, the decline in populations, in turn, supported increasingly the dying race narrative at the time, that eventually, particularly Australia's indigenous people, would simply die out. And so there was a turn to their becoming uh, simply objects of anthropological interest. This is based on a photograph of J.W. Lint. It's captioned simply, an Aboriginal woman. But we now know that this is Marianne Cowan, a Bunjalung woman, whose descendants, in fact, are very much alive today. And what we're seeing here is the beginning of a kind of historical amnesia in which, as we begin to remember our nation as it was and as it is, a key part of that remembering is forgetting. Um, and this forgetting was already underway in the Atlas to the point where the poem that led off the volume one of the Atlas from J.F. Daniel had to say of Australia on its commemoration, uh, on its centennial day, no wrongs have been done to the world in thy name. No treason nor bloodshed have brought thee disgrace. Unsullied thy flag and untarnished thy fame. Thy honor is bright and as fair as thy face. Otherwise, the focus in the Atlas was, more happily, on Australia's beauties, uh, rich and rare, along with the settler transformation of this beautiful country um, that kept uh, Australasia connected and productive for the rest of the world. That's Cape Nelson on the left, done by Fullwood. That's point perpendicular uh, in New South Wales by Ashton uh, on the right. But the sea was often presented not only with lighthouses scouring for the connections uh, to the rest of the world, but here's Circular Quay, the, the direct shipping connection, and then the newly laid submarine cable up in Port Darwin with a dauntless night operator keeping Australia connected to the rest of the world uh, in, that, in that way. Uh, landscapes, of course, were the overwhelmingly most important genre uh, within, within the atlas. But again, as the sheep look on at their brethren and the flocks below from uh, Mount Lura looking out to Lake Karangamai, you can even see in the distance, there's a train running through there. There's a tra train running through, obviously taking the wool down to the, to the port of Melbourne. So there's no wildness as such. And it's all really quite vague beyond where agriculture had reached that point uh, in the colony. The emphasis in the, in the atlas, therefore, about beauties rich and rare is that th what this represented was the golden soil from which wealth for toil could be, could be extracted. The pastoral industries were absolutely crucial, of course, at this, at this time, as evidenced by this magnificent drawing of, uh, by Frank Marnie of cattle swimming the, 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 the darling. Um, it was also the subject of outback life, of course, as well. And here you particularly see the influence, the American influence of frontier art from the United States. This is Livingston Hopkins showing a shearer knocking down his check on the one hand and then on the other rounding up a straggler, which became the subject of a later painting. Agriculture was also folk re represented as well. We have a lucerne harvest from Maitland on the left. And here is a very characteristic scrapbook way of presenting uh, the, the images. Very common way of cascading uh, productive, productive pro processes uh, as well as the uh, incidence of wheat farming uh, in South Australia 
done by Ashton uh, as well. And then, of course, there were the, mi the mining industries. Now, Fullwood actually trekked up north of Glen Innes to Vegetable Creek, or Emmaville, as it now is, to get a very picturesque view of a tin mine there at the top, combined with the, the backbreaking work of the Cornish tin miners washing the tin, tin below. But my favorite mining picture in the atlas, for sure, is there on the right by William Smedley. It's Hargraves discovering gold. Hargraves clearly has just stepped out from his brownstone on Fifth Avenue in New York, uh, which is where, of course, Smedley uh, spent a, a great deal of his time. But out of all of that wealth for toil came the colonial modernity of great cities. And the American artists were particularly keen to remain settled in Sydney and Melbourne to produce some really fa fabulous pictures of these uh, extraordinary metropolises. Just to say briefly, because I know time is getting on for me, but this picture of, by Smedley on the left, simply called Spring Street, is where the aesthetic revolution of the 19th century meets the technological revolution. Smedley had been to Paris, it's obvious, because that could almost have come out of uh, Montparnasse. And uh, it's, uh, it, it's, in my view, it's probably the first truly impressionist picture that was ever done in Australia. It was done in 18, 1886. And this trope of rain-splashed city pavements became very predominant in the work of Condor, Roberts, Fullwood, and others later on. And in fact, for some reason, if you look at the art of that period, it was always raining in cities, even when the sun was shining on the harbor uh, and, on, and on the Hawkesbury. So that's a quick conspectus of the iconography of the atlas. What's missing? Settler women's contributions. There's not a single portrait of a settler woman in the atlas. Not a single one. But who else, or what else was missing? Ah, oh, sorry, I missed out here. This is a contrast. This is Smedley's view of women and men in Sydney on a Saturday night on George Street. Considerably more louche uh, than their Melbourneian counterparts. And this is Fullwood's view of Sturt Street B Ballarat with everybody in their Sunday best uh, on Sturt Street. And I missed out as well. My favorite picture in the whole atlas of Fullwood's anyway. This, this is, believe it or not, the Macquarie at Dubbo. Um, but what it really il illustrates is the playfulness that you can get with illustration with the tree breaking through the nominal picture frame to provide a canopy over it. Here we come at last. So what was missing? Native animals. This is the only page in the atlas where you'll find kangaroos, koalas, you know, the, the actual stuff of the centenary of bicentenary of 1988. No, the, the mascot, the logo, was this very contented merino ram because that was actually what mattered as far as the settler colonial Australasians were concerned. All right. Um, I'm going to move quickly now, but I want to complete the argument, uh, at least in very much in outline form. So I presented to you something of the art and artists of the Atlas. So what impact did they have then on the Australian art between 1886 and 1920? Very briefly, for a start, the art made stars of its Sydney artist illustrators. Julian Ashton was quickly hailed as the father of Australian art, not just because he championed Australian art like no other uh, in that period, um, but also because of his work as a, as a teacher, as well as an artist, uh, as well as a superb art politician, as you'll soon hear. Frank Marnie was quickly recognized as Australia's finest animal painter, but more importantly, he became the most important uh, cartoonist of the Bulletin in the 1890s and illustrated not just pictures of uh, outback life, but in particular the poems of Henry Lawson. And Lawson insisted on the right that only uh, Marnie could illustrate uh, his short stories and poems. Fullwood in turn became Sydney's leading impressionist. And here we're back to those wet pavements. A wet evening in George Street on, on the left and reflections by the GPO 10 years later. Absolutely stunning bravura display of the illuminated lights uh, of the city. Um, but it was landscapes that remained, of course, the dominant genre, as you well know, uh, from your love of street and, um, 
and so, and so forth. But this is one that Fulwood did of the Shoalhaven from, uh, from, from Camp Camberwara. All right. So first of all, the Atlas artists did well. But secondly, the Atlas and its artists transformed the Sydney art world. Julian Ashton led a coup in 1886, took over the Art Society of New South Wales with the majority of its committee consisting of Atlas artists, and started becoming much more bullshy about getting more support for colonial art in Australia. He then, with Henry Park's support, became a trustee of the National Art Gallery of New South Wales, got a 500-pound commitment per year for the purchase of colonial art as a result of his position as a trustee. And then when the New South Wales Society, uh, uh, sorry, Art Society was seen to be too much dominated by amateurs, Fullwood and others created a new society to make sure that the claims of professional artists were properly heard. The Atlas and its artists also induced a step change in the quality of Australia's illustrated press. This is a centennial view of Sydney by Fullwood, the largest wood engraved artwork that was ever created uh, in Australia. An extraordinary bird's eye view from the centennial issue of the Sydney Mail. And in turn, this step change here created greater interest back in England in the work that was being done here. And so here are Fullwood and Marnie collaborating uh, on a picture about the departure of Lord and Lady Carrington from Sydney for the London Graphic, a really ex exquisite work. And then with all these developments going on in Sydney, this set the scene for Roberts and Streeton's triumphs as Sydney artists in the 1890s. They came to Sydney in the early 1890s as economic refugees from Melbourne because they couldn't sell their pictures. This picture, Still Glides the Stream and Forever Glide, was the first gallery picture that Street never sold, but he sold it to the National Art Gallery of New South Wales at Julian Ashton's uh, insistence. And this became the period of their most iconic paintings, not in Victoria, but up here in New, in New, in New South Wales. And, and Streeton and Robertson became completely assimilated uh, within as members of Sydney's art world. And that in turn made it really clear that once you merged the interests of the Victorian painters with Sydney's artist illustrators, we're talking about a much bigger story, the story about settler colonial art in Australia. Because all these artists were drawing upon the same iconography, the iconography that had been consolidated by the Atlas, and they were working from the same largely British artistic influences in how they went about their work, whether as illustrators or as painters. And the world is now set or the stage is now set then for taking Australian art, the settler colonial art, to the world, which Ashton again orchestrated in 1893 to the Chicago World's Columbian uh, Exposition. And our artists did really well there. Uh, Fullwood took out four gold medals at this, uh, through uh, the Pavilion of Fine Arts. And the Atlas also took out a gold medal for its uh, productions as well. And then five years later, uh, again, from Sydney and through Ashton, we had the first exhibition of Australian art in London in 1898. So it's a great story, right? But there wouldn't be a great Australian story, right, without a sting in the tail, of course. So the hiatus in all of this is that, in fact, the Sydney art market collapsed in the 1890s due to a banking crisis followed by the Federation drought. The first casualty was the picturesque atlas, which went bust through a combination of litigation, parliamentary inquiries into its sales tactics, and because of the overreach uh, in this extraordinary achievement, it just simply spent more money than it actually had at its disposal. But even more broadly, this was the end of the era of wood engraved art due to cost cutting, but also made possible by advances in engraving and photographic technologies. So now you get artists displaced by photographers in the illustrated press. And in turn, we get a mass dispersal out of Sydney of the leading artists, including Lambert, Robert Street, and Fullwood, Marnie, and others, to London. Um, and, and so, curiously, the last hurrah of the Atlas and the settler colonial art movement took place in the capital of Britain's imperial art world. And the beginning of the last hurrah were postcards 
These are postcard views that, that Fultwood created for Raphael Tuck, the postcard king. 150 scenes of Australia and New Zealand, many of them coming straight out of the picturesque atlas. You'll recognize the pose about gold prospecting there, for example. But the final expression of the movement was in their service as war artists uh, on the sum. And these artists were the perfect illustrators of Charles Bean's Anzac legend, celebrating masculine heroism and the settler colonial values of mateship and nationalist pride. Well, that was a bit of a canter. But to get to the point, so, but, so making a case that in fact, the, the art and artists of the Atlas clearly mattered at the time. The Atlas was a landmark in the history of Australian art. It enlarged the audience for Australian art to the point where by the 1920s, Australian art lovers were no longer interested in English art. They wanted to buy local. The Atlas also shaped the iconography of all of the artists of that period, an iconography of settler colonialism so that what was inside the frame was whiteness, masculinity, and pride in dispossession and the transformation of the country of First Nations people. And finally, the Atlas, I believe, was directly responsible for establishing Sydney as the capital of Australian art and promoting the kind of art that went on from there. So, in my humble view, we need to give the art and the artists of the Atlas more prominence in the stories we tell ourselves about Australian art between the 1880s and the 1920s. But we also need but we also need to look more critically at the iconography of all settler colonial artists, including Robertson Streeton, their deeply troubling silences and omissions. But does the, does the art and the artists of the Atlas matter still today? Well, my question would be, don't we need to take an equally critical look at why this art this art still exercises such a hold on how we see Australia and its history. Why does this remain our favorite cultural comfort food? And I know that sounds a bit harsh, but look at the throngs who turned up for the Streeton exhibition at the beginning of the year. The way that exhibition was lauded. In a time of COVID, of course, we want to embrace that sunshine, obviously, but it goes deeper, deeper than that. And likewise, if Melbourne's allowed to open for longer than a few weeks, people will also throng to the she -Oak and Sunlight Australian Impressionism exhibition in Melbourne, and not least because there then will be a big dose of real impressionism at the NGV's international show from the uh, collection of the, of the Boston Fine Arts Museum. So, in other words, to what extent are we still in thrall to the underlying sentiments of this art and the song it channels, Advance Australia Fair. This, in my view, is why the art and artists of the Atlas still matter today. Thank you.